Quick, what are you doing to disciple your kids? Catechids can help. Catechids is a little book with 100 simple questions and answers to help parents teach their young children the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, to lead them to faith in Jesus, and equip them to walk in the Spirit every day and love God. I wrote Catechids for my own kids, and they love it. It's become a tool that's been blessing Christian families and churches far and wide. Get Catechids on Amazon today or by going to thethink.institute. Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Senecase. And now, get ready to think. Welcome back to another episode of The Think Podcast with Joel Senecase. I'm Joel Setticase. Now, let me just very quickly remind you to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done that yet, and be sure to hit that bell so you never miss a moment of our content that helps you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. If you're watching on Facebook, you can hop over to the YouTube channel to comment. The link is in the description there, or uh, you can go to streamyard.com slash Facebook and enter in your permissions there, and uh, then I'll be able to see who you are and I will be able to read your comment on the air live. If you do have a question or a comment for Pastor Lutzer, please post it in the comments and um, start your question with the word question so that I can spot it. Looks like we're already having some comments coming in. Um, we are currently seeking new ministry partners for the Think Institute, and so if you've been blessed or encouraged by our content or resources, please consider heading over to give.crew.org slash 1018841. That's our giving page, and you can learn more about what prayer and financial partnership might look like over there. And if you'd like to get me or a member of the Think Institute team to your church, conference, group, or event, you can go to thethink.institute slash booking. That's our new address for our booking page, and um, you can go check that out. All right. Well, let's get into our topic. And actually, let me go ahead and read something from the back of the book we're going to be discussing today. This is the book, We Will Not Be Silenced by Erwin Lutzer, because I really think this is the best way to introduce today's topic. Every day, you watch America turn further from Christian values and the core principles of liberty. It's frustrating to feel you can't assert biblical truth without facing condemnation, and frightening to witness outrage and victimhood replace respect and reason. Amid this dissent, how can you not only stay rooted in your faith, but continue to publicly testify for Jesus? Well, to help discuss this with me today is Pastor Erwin Lutzer. Erwin Lutzer has over 40 years of pastoral ministry under his belt, most notably as the lead pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, the church where my wife and her family attended while she was a youngin'. And uh, however, at a time when many would feel content to ride off into the sunset, Erwin Lutzer has decided to go in on today's unbiblical, destructive, and false ideologies of the radical left and its agenda to destroy America. Pastor Lutzer is the author of this new book, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. I'm holding it up in front of the camera so you can see it there if you're watching live. And this book 
This book provides an outstanding commentary and call to action. Lutzer shows in the book that he is current on the latest cultural and ideological trends, and he offers incisive diagnoses, concluding with a gospel-centered finale that leaves the reader hopeful and motivated to follow Christ more courageously. And if you like that summary, you can read all about that at the book register on our website, thethink.institute, where I gave a brief summary and review of the book. By the way, rated it 10 out of 10, and that's not just because I knew Pastor Lutzer was going to be coming on the show. I really, really did enjoy it. So in this show, we're going to seek to tackle questions related to the radical left and their agenda. And if you're watching live, let me just go ahead and say greetings to Gospel Ambassador and others who are watching live, whether on YouTube and Facebook. And of course, if you're catching us later on the podcast, welcome. Thank you so much for listening. And now, without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome Pastor Erwin Lutzer to the show. Pastor Lutzer, welcome. I'm so glad to be with you today, Joel, and uh, thank you so much for that introduction. And of course, I remember your family, your in-laws especially, and it's great to be with you. We haven't connected for a while, but it's great to be on your show. Well, thank you. The pleasure is all mine, and I have to say, I have been looking forward to this episode so much, and I don't know who's been looking forward to it more, my wife or me, but um, this has been something I've really greatly been looking forward to. So thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. Um, Why don't we just go ahead and start with, you're at a point in your ministry career where you've got over four decades of ministry under your belt. Why choose to write this book, tackling this pressing issue today? Why not ride off into the sunset, enjoy retirement, go down to Florida and just relax? Why write this book? Well, you know, someday perhaps I'll go down to Florida and learn how to play shuffleboard. But I really do believe that God has given me a ministry, especially in my old age, hopefully being able to shed some light on the present culture. And so, Joel, I wrote this book when I began to realize that the radical left in America does not believe that America can be fixed. They believe it must be destroyed and rebuilt according to a Marxist foundation. And uh, on the other side of the revolution, there will not be any white supremacy or income inequality. All of the problems are going to be solved. Mm. Now, I'm going to take out time, Joel, to explain the difference between classical Marxism which, uh, you know, brought about the revolutions in China and Russia at the expense of millions of lives. Cultural Marxism says we can bring in a Marxist state without a great revolution and bloodshed. All that we have to do is to capture law. We have to capture the home. We have to capture, you know, communication and all of these things. And if we do that, cultural Marxism says, we will be able to bring it in incrementally and everyone will finally want it because they will see the tremendous advantage that it really is. So that's the way in which it works. And by the way, while I'm on the topic, let's talk about the home for just a moment. Marx believed that the home was a unit of oppression. Now we need to understand that in Marxism, all of history is understood according to oppression. And I don't know where this discussion all is going to go because I know there are many chapters in my book. But Joel, I have to remind you that the uh, key Marxism is oppression. So you divide society into the oppressed and into the oppressors. Mm. 
and uh, wives are uh, oppressed by their husbands and parents oppress their children. God is the ultimate oppressor. And so what we need to do is to destroy the family. And that's exactly what we see happening. So why didn't I just ride off into that sunset? I believe that God has still given me a ministry. I always pray, oh Lord, keep me alive until I die. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, uh, in reading this book, I can absolutely vouch you are very much alive and uh, very much kicking and, and very much kicking back against this radical leftism. And what I really appreciated is how you really pull no punches. Um, you really are taking this ideology and this really this collection of ideologies um, on full frontal. And um, I guess maybe the first thing we ought to address then, Pastor Lutzer, is how did we get here? How did these forces that are seeking to dismantle America and our core values, how did they gain so much traction and influence? Well, of course, you know, as I've already hinted, Karl Marx actually is ruling from the grave. And we must understand mm. that Marxism is very attractive. I mean, isn't it attractive to have income equality, for example? Isn't it e attractive to have a state in which everyone is equal, which is a very important word to Marxism. We want a state that is completely equal, where everyone is equal. And of course, we know how that word is misused. You have income equality, which is socialism. You also have such things as uh, same-sex marriage equality, which is same-sex marriage. You have all these different uses of the word equality reproductive equality for women. And so as we look at society, we realize that it is really in harm with our desires. You know, the apostle Paul said very clearly that in the last days there will be teachers that will appeal to people's desires. So all of these things are desire driven and they appear attractive. But one of the things that I show in the book is that ultimately they must fail and people have to understand why. I also wrote the book to help parents to understand why is it that when I send my kids to university, why do they come back hating America? Hmm. Why is our Judeo-Christian values being so terribly vilified? All of these things must be understood, and we got here incrementally because of the supposed attraction of these ideas. But um, we know where it leads ultimately is to disillusionment, despair, and a total rejection of everything that is of God. Because remember, for Marxists, God was the ultimate oppressor. And that's why Karl Marx said it's the opium of the people. So we don't want a God to rule over us. Thank you very much. We can rule ourselves and we can do it a lot better. That's the cultural narrative. Right. When you say Marx is ruling from the grave um how, how did that how did that come to be america is a nation that was founded on very non-marxist ideas I, I think um even if you go back 50 60 years it was understood that you know socially i mean 
go back to presidents and the word socialism, socialism was an insult. Uh, you didn't want to be called a socialist. And yet today, it's like the those values have been flipped on their head. Socialism is in vogue. Um, Marxism is no longer a bad word so that we've got cultural thought leaders like Patrice uh, Cullors, one of the founders of BLM, openly ascribing herself to be a trained Marxist. How did these Marxist ideologies and ideas, how did they take hold in our society? Well, first of all, because they were advocated in our universities, many of the university professors are left-leaning. You also have, and, and so, you know, it's filtered down into society this way. But I go back to what I was saying earlier. Isn't it wonderful to have the illusion of the possibility of equality? And so that became a very attractive idea, the misuse of the word, of course. But since we're talking about it and socialism, my wife and I were in Russia in the mid-1980s, and we discovered that some of the doctors there were being paid very little more than other people who did work in the hospitals. Is it any wonder that, of course, they had a great dearth of doctors? Right. Because whenever the state, remember this about socialism, in socialism, the money does not belong to you, it belongs to the government. And it's up to the government, it's up to the state to divvy out the money as they see fit. And of course, what they're interested in is that wonderful word, the word equality. Right. And uh, here, here's what you'll notice, um, Joel, is that Marxists never talk about creating wealth. They always talk about how it's to be divided. Hmm. Because if you have a pie and you divide it up in very specific and very accurately equal pieces, and you give out the pie, well, when the pie is over, where's another pie? Right. Well, the answer to Marxism is you just print more money. And even as our government continues to print more money ex nihilo, which as you know, means out of nothing, they just move some decimal points on a computer. Even as that is happening, what we discover very clearly is the fact that eventually you have rampant inflation, you have all the things that accompany that. So Marxism has a total uh, misunderstanding of human nature. On the one hand, it wants to be very relevant and very attractive. I mean, you have free healthcare, free college, free this, free that, but in the end, it is destructive. You know, uh, back in Israel, and I know that you have a great deal of, of interest in Israel, they were going to run a kibbutz with socialist principles. And everybody gets paid the same, you know, whether you sleep in in the morning, whether you do your work or not. And uh, eventually they found out that there were people who were bringing their dogs to the dining room. They were leaving lights on. And they discovered that it was a paradise for parasites, and that's what Marxism is. And that's why Churchill said these words. He made it very clear. He said, the great curse of capitalism is the unequal distribution of blessings. The great benefit of socialism is the equal distribution of misery. So it always fails, but it's very attractive. And Marx rules from the grave because the whole idea 
that there is no God that rules over us. The whole idea that we, in effect, become our own God, again, is very attractive to human nature. Right. And it's all done in this, in the name of equality. It's, it's appealing to our higher virtues. It's appealing to what we would recognize as followers of Jesus as actually being biblical principles. Um, equality is something that is, is virtuous, is it not? One of the things I point out in the book, we will not be silenced, is the fact that, yes, there's the misuse of the word equality exactly, but also the misuse of the word justice. And I distinguish biblical justice from so-called social justice. Biblical justice has to do with uh, equality under the law, taking care of the poor and so forth. But social justice, as it is taught in our universities today, is actually socialism. It is not only socialism, it has to do with sexual radicalism. So you have equality for transgender people, you have equality for same-sex marriages. And Joel, if the Equality Act were ever enacted and became a law, it would be a tremendous intrusion of freedom of religion. But uh, nonetheless, that's where society is going. And the question that we have to ask is this, Joel, do you have any daughters, I wonder? I know that you're married. Yes. Yes, you have Yeah, daughters. we've got two daughters and two sons, right. All right. How would you like it if your daughters were in a gym class and the person that they were taking lessons from was a man who was born a man, but now he identifies as a woman, and they would be in the locker room together? Yeah, no chance. That's, no chance, but that's exactly what the right. Equality Act would do, and that's actually what our president did right. when he signed some legislation very early on in his presidency. Now, what you can do is just to expand that. It would affect the, who we can hire and not hire, even yeah. in religious circles, eventually even to churches. So we can see here that all of this is done, however, under the guise the guise is justice and equality. Right. And what happens is other people's freedoms are being taken away. We no longer have freedom. So the bottom line is this, the more space occupied by the state, the less opportunity there is for individual freedoms and individual ingenuity. Right. You know, I, I, since I'm on socialism and then let's, we can go on to different topics, but I have to say this, that there are young people who say, oh, capitalism is based on greed. Socialism is based on need. I show in the book that the opposite actually is true. Under socialism, you get paid the same whether you make something that people want or not. When we were in Russia, my interpreter told me about a factory that made shoes. These were shoes that nobody could wear because the contour of the foot was entirely wrong. But it didn't matter. They kept making the shoes. They had a whole warehouse full of shoes that nobody could wear. Why? Because we get paid the same whether people can use our shoes or not. Another right. man said, we were asked to make steel. And he said, the steel that we made could not be used for anything. It was really badly made, bad ingredients, bad equipment, but it didn't matter. We got paid the same whether anyone was able to use our steel or not. 
So you see where this leads. But nonetheless, initially, it is attractive. And uh, I sure hope, Joel, that we get to the chapter in my book, and I know that you've read the book on the topic of propaganda and freedom of speech, because what happens there is all of these ideas are in our culture and the cultural streams are fed by propaganda. Yes, I absolutely want to get there. Um, you know, you mentioned something earlier. I mean, you, you've, you've said how Marxism appeals to equality and overcoming oppression. And one area where I've really seen this and that you really bring out in your book is how the radical left has hijacked this idea of diversity, um, where instead of the American ideal, the principle of e pluribus unum, out of many, one, it seems to be the exact opposite, out of one, many. And this idea of diversity has been hijacked to keep people of different ethnicities in perpetual endless conflict with one another. What's what's your take on that? And how do we move past this the this leftist agenda of endless ethnic conflict? Joel, I'm so glad that you asked me that question because I want to respond to it. And I have to tell you that, first of all, regarding the conflict itself, the conflict is deliberately fueled you remember in my book, I talk about Saul Alinsky here in mm -hmm. Chicago, who told his followers, don't solve problems, use them. Right. He was opposed to helping under-resourced communities because if he helped them, he would see that as a defeat because what he, as a committed Marxist, wanted to see was perpetual conflict. And what he took was Marx, who had, of course, the conflict between the proletariat, the wealthy landowners and the, uh, or I should say the bourgeoisie, the wealthy landowners, the proletariat, of course, were the workers. What he, what Alinsky did is he applied that to race. And he said, what we're going to do is to take all of society and divide it into two groups. On the one hand, you have all of the uh, rulers, the white supremacists, and they are the oppressors. Right. And of course, the minorities are the oppressed. And so once you're in that category, whatever category you're in, you can't get out and it's all based on the skull of the color of your skin. So here's the point is that the belief is that there can be no peace until the oppressed overcome the oppressors and have cultural dominance. So distinguishing and the struggle between the races, between the ethnicities, is absolutely essential and necessary and constantly being fueled by our society. Now, here's the way it works. If you're white, you're a person of privilege, even if you were born in the poorest area that you and I could possibly imagine. Whereas a black American, of whom there are millions who have been very, very successful, even though they are successful, let's take Michael Jordan, for example, they would not be considered a person of privilege because they have a different skin color. So what you want to do is totally opposed, by the way, to uh, against Martin Luther King. What you want to do is you want to divide the races and you want to make sure that there is really no hope for any meaningful 
reconciliation. Now, what is the response of the church? Your question asked that question as well. The response of the church is simply this. We have an answer that critical race theory does not have. We believe that the differences between us are not that great. Ultimately, of course, we're all of one blood. Not only that, but uh, we're all created in the image of God and something else unites us. We are all sinners. And so we come to the foot of the cross. We come to receive forgiveness, for restoration, for healing. And uh, at the Lord's table, there are no black spaces and white spaces and right. brown spaces. We are one in Christ. Right. And then we ask ourselves the question, what can we do to make things better? So Christianity says we really don't have a skin problem. We have a sin problem. And if only we could get back to what Martin Luther King said, his view of individualism, let's not judge one another by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. That kind of teaching is vilified today in our universities and colleges. Cultural Marxism will not tolerate a sentence like that. Right. And it's it's uh, it's troubling to see and those who speak out against it are finding that there's this wall uh there's this barrier to entry now oftentimes to the the public sphere as so much of our our public discourse now takes place on social media um right now we're broadcasting onto facebook youtube we'll put this on the podcast later and and yet what we're finding is there are these gatekeepers in the tech industry, in the news media, and they are censoring free speech for conservatives and Christians. And they're also using something that you alluded to earlier, which is propaganda. So there's this two-pronged approach of censorship on the one hand and propaganda on the other. How, how are censorship and propaganda coming into play in this advancements of, of the radical left agenda? Joel, excellent question, and I want to respond to it, but I'm going to back up just a little bit. Sure. We talked earlier about cultural Marxism, dividing people into the oppressed and into the oppressors. Right. So what you have is a man in the 60s whom you wouldn't remember, but I did. I'm a little older than you are. And this man by the name of Marcuse, said this, if we allow freedom of speech, the capitalists are always going to win. Right. And we know that socialism is right, quasi-Marxism. So the only way we can win is to say, we will not allow the capitalists to speak. It is time for the oppressed only to speak. Mm. And that explains why it is in our universities today that uh, conservatives oftentimes are not welcome because they are members of the oppressor. It is time for the oppressed only to have freedom of speech. So the LGBTQ community, which of course is part of the oppressed, they should have unlimited rights to speak, but not the oppressors. And by the way, Joel, what happens is this, if uh, some of the students hear something they don't agree with, they have to retreat into a safe place where they can lick the wounds of their unappreciated victimhood. Right. And so that's what happens. Now, that's the background. So let's now talk about propaganda. Okay. Here's what happens. 
I'm going to jump into it very quickly. Propaganda, collective demonization. Collective demonization was perfected in Russia, okay? When the state deplatformed someone, that would be our term, everyone else had to chime in to make sure that they, that the world knew that they were on the state's side. There were people who didn't even know the person, didn't know what he believed, but they wrote letters agreeing with the state because everyone said, we want to be in with you on this and we have to prove our loyalty to the state and we have to demonize collectively. So that's why it is today when somebody's on social media or some person is deplatformed, everyone else begins to chime in. When the baseball game, the all-star game is moved from, uh, from the state of Georgia, I think right. it is to Denver, everybody else has to chime in, whether it's Coca-Cola, whether or not it's Delta, because they have to all say, look at us, we are virtuous, and we are on the right side. Right. So people today are asking this question, am I woke enough to be thought of as virtuous? And if, you, if I show myself, then I hope all people see how innocent I am of all of the sins that I accuse others of believing. Right. Now, I know that you have an interest, certainly your father-in-law does, in Nazi Germany, considering mm -hmm. the, the terrible things that were done against the Jews. In Nazi Germany, there were churches that hung up swastikas on the door of their church because they wanted to say, when you come for the Christians, don't come for us because we are on your side. Mm. That's collective demonization. And I'm going to quote Churchill here, and then I'm going to go answer your other question, how does propaganda actually work? But okay. Churchill said this, that somebody who is an appeaser feeds the alligator with a hope that the alligator will eat him last. Right. So what you're doing is you're feeding the leftists so that they don't come for you and so that you can say, hey, look, I'm on your side. But the implication is eventually they will get you, though. Yeah, they will. They will. <laughs> They'll gobble everybody up. And that's why there are stores and organizations that gave money to Black Lives Matter. And lo and behold, their stores were looted and destroyed anyway. So right. the alligator will eventually get you. But propaganda. Propaganda needs two things in order to really work. First of all, hate is very important. You need a group to hate. And of course, in Germany, that was the Jews. In our day, it's the white supremacists who have to be feared and hated and so forth. You need a group to hate. And then what you need is you need fear so that if anybody steps out of line, they know that they're going to be punished for having stepped out of line. And so what you do is you keep the group in line and woe excuse me, woe and behold to the person who steps out of line. So that's the way in which it works. Then what you do is you train people to actually want to hear lies. And uh, these lies will be uh, filtered in. Remember what the purpose of propaganda is. I should have begun there. The purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality then even when faced with a mountain of evidence, 
they will not change their minds. You and I have met people like that. For yeah. Facts simply do not matter. Right. And then what you do is you shut down the opposition, of course, by taking away their freedom of speech, which uh, Stephen Douglas said that this was the dread of tyrants was freedom of speech. And how is that done today? Well, it's done by all of the nonsense regarding pronouns, regarding what words you can say and what words you can't say. And when you begin to try to unravel this and what schools are demanding of their students, you know, that you can't say this, this has to be neutral language here. Right. In fact, did you see that, that uh, you're not supposed to say unmanned objects because you know, that's man. Man, that's gendered language. Very yeah. problematic. Well, yeah. Very problematic. You know, somebody has said, is it going to come to, we were at a restaurant the other day and you have a menu. We're Ooh. looking for the woman you, you know, in other <laughs> words, <laughs> you know, absolute stupidity. But we live in an Complete era, insanity. Yeah. Yeah. We live in an area in which absurdity no longer actually is an argument against anything. Is that but part of the is, design though? Is that part of part of the design? The part of the design is to say to so make people fear that they might say the wrong thing that they say nothing. Right. And and they are totally paralyzed and they have to just let our culture float by because they're bewildered with all of the pronouns, which one to use. Right. And and so I want to speak to all the Christians who are listening, and we hope that many of them are, and many may be mm -hmm. investigating Christianity, or they may believe anything. We welcome everyone yes. to this show. But I want us to understand the unique place that Christians are in today. A school teacher writes to me and says this, we have a boy in school who at home is Bert because he was born a boy. When he comes to school, he wants to be known as Bertha because he identifies as a girl. Of course, the advantage is he can then insist that he go into a world uh, into a girl's washroom and all, but leaving mm -hmm. that aside. But here's the thing. And then the teacher says, the principal told me that when his parents come for a parent-teacher consultation, I cannot tell the parents that at school he identifies as a girl. So the question is, what do Christian parents do in a world like that? Another school teacher here at the Moody Church told me, he said, you know, he said, I was told that it's not enough for me to tolerate same-sex marriage. If I don't celebrate it, I could lose my job. Well, that's a line in the sand. Right. You might be able to tolerate it, but you can't celebrate what God has condemned. So here's the question, Joel, that I throw out to your audience. Is the church of Jesus Christ ready? Is the church ready to stand by people like that and say, we will help you during this transition. If you lose your job, we have your back because we begin to see the fact that we need one another. And we too, in that sense, have to stand together with solidarity and stand with those who are losing their jobs. And while I'm on it, I wanna put a footnote to this. You know, it's interesting that you have to celebrate it. That's what he's being told. When the Bible says in Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good, they have only 
finished one half of their assignment. Hmm. The other half is they have to call that which is evil, not only call that which is evil good, but they have to call the good evil. Right. That's the full circumference of what it is that they have to do. So that's what we're up against. And uh, isn't it wonderful that God has brought us to a moment like this, a moment of challenge yes. to represent him in a culture that has totally lost its way? Yeah, I was I was actually thinking about that. I don't remember if it was this morning or last night, how being alive in, at this moment in history, according to God's plan, we, we know we believe God is sovereign over all things, and according to his word, and I think about passages like Acts 17, God has placed us in history exactly when he wanted us to live, and that means he has a plan for us, for Pastor Lutzer, for Joel Sedekes, for Elisa, for my kids, for your kids and your grandkids to live at this particular moment. And we are supposed to fulfill the Great Commission now. He doesn't want us fighting yesterday's battles. He doesn't want us fighting tomorrow's battles. He's got us here at this particular moment right now. We're to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's going to cost us something different than maybe it cost our ancestors, but it's always going to cost. And at the end of our lives, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant for the mission that he assigned to us at this particular moment in history, just like he had a mission for Esther. He's got a mission for us. And so I was thinking about that exact thing. And yeah, I agree. I think it is wonderful. It's trying, it's difficult, but it's unique and it's a privilege to be able to invest our talents here in this particular marketplace. Um, so I appreciate you saying this. And, and again, if anyone has not read this book, we will not be silenced. I want to give another plug for it. It's, it's very, very good. You, if you're not familiar with Pastor Lutzer's writings, this is a great entree into it. I've read a few of his books and, uh, they never disappoint, but this one I found particularly strong and serrated and, uh, and helpful and, and even encouraging. And as we begin, to round the final lap here of our conversation before we get to uh, comments and questions. And by the way, if you have a comment or question, go ahead and drop it in the comments below and we'll get to that at the end. But um, perhaps we could turn now to a question of particular interest to Christians who want to fulfill the mission that Jesus has for us at this particular moment in history. And and uh, let's let's talk now, if we could, Pastor Lutzer, about how an ancient word from Jesus Christ, a warning from Jesus Christ that you discuss in your book, and this is a warning that was spoken nearly 2,000 years ago to one of the churches in in that uh, era. How does this warning that Jesus gives to the ancient church strengthen today's church for this fight against radical leftism, against cultural Marxism, against the ideological uh, forces that are trying to harm the church, harm God's world, and bring down America today. How does that ancient warning from Christ speak to us today, and how does this all testify to the importance of the gospel? Sorry, that's a lot, but feel free to break it down however you want. First of all, I want to begin not where, uh, you know, not to the chapter that you were referring to. I'll get there in just one minute, and okay. thank you so much for your question. One of the things I point out is when we talk about the vilification of our Judeo-Christian heritage, I talk about racism and how that is used and so forth. But one of the things we're going to have to learn, Joel, and you hinted at this, 
is what the early Christians learned. When Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church, he was standing in Caesarea Philippi, and it was the seat of pagan religion. Right. And we're going to have to learn what the early church learned, that ultimately, of course, the church, as Americans, we have to remember, the church is not built on the American Constitution, though the Constitution is a remarkable document and has given us, and you know, I was born in Canada. I don't know if you know that, Joel, you probably do, but yep. I am a naturalized American citizen. The more I know about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, I begin to see a wisdom there that is really quite remarkable. But ultimately, the church is based on Jesus Christ, and we're going to have to relearn that. We're going to have to learn what persecution looks like. We've not had to, but it's coming, and it's already here because there is no place for us to hide. But the reference that you made in your question has to do with Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is writing to the church at Sardis, and he says, strengthen what remains. Now, Rebecca and I, my wife and I, have been to Sardis, and what we saw was churches built up against pagan temples. And these were third or fourth centuries, so these aren't the original churches to whom Jesus wrote the letter. But you know, that's an interesting phenomenon. What are the churches doing next to pagan temples? There are two ways to understand this. One is to say that the church said, we want to be where the darkness is the worst and we want to be able to witness to paganism right where paganism exists. Sure. That's one interpretation. But there's another interpretation which may be the true one, namely that the church felt at home next to the pagan temple with all kinds of uh, various kinds of sexuality and what have it and what have you. So Jesus writes a letter to the first century church and says, you have a, you have a reputation that you're alive, but actually I've checked it with a stethoscope and I cannot find a heartbeat. Right. You are dead. And then Jesus goes on to give a diagnosis of repentance and so forth. But in that chapter, what I do is I write what I think Jesus might say to the church in America today. And of course, I could be wrong, but that's my take on what I think, and it has to do with the gospel. It has to do with buying into our sexual culture. And by the way, I have to emphasize that that is happening in churches under the guise of love. Mm. And I point out that love is oftentimes evil. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't stop loving. They just started to love other things, lovers right. of pleasure, lovers of self, lovers of money. So just because something is loving doesn't make it right. Jesus said, herein, you know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And if you love me, keep my commandments. So then I go on to technology. As you know, in my book, I have a chapter entitled The Sexualization of Children. Yeah. And I talk about how the cell phone in your teenager's hand will do more to inform his or her worldview than an hour of church and an hour of Sunday school. So we have to fight this battle on multiple fronts. But, and then we can go to the questions that uh, you might want to ask, and perhaps our listeners have asked for some questions or requested an answer. Isn't it interesting that even in that letter, 
Jesus said, but there are still some of you in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. So I want to say to all who are listening, we cannot change the cancel culture. We cannot change the culture, probably not, but let us make sure that the culture does not change us and may we be among a faithful remnant. And that remnant is going to be getting smaller and smaller as the cultural pressures of our society and of our governments begin to crush upon us. So I want us to be encouraged and to know that this is a privilege. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, for great is your reward in heaven. And we have to relearn that as the church has had to learn it throughout the centuries. Amen. Amen. And, and um, you know, it's really amazing, isn't it, in Revelation 3, when Jesus tells the church, strengthen what remains. He, he tells them that they're dead, and then he says, strengthen what remains. In other words, there is a remnant, although institutionally they've become dead like you said he's checking them for a pulse he can't find one and yet there are still believers in the church who will hear the word of christ who will hear this warning and will respond and we can hope and we can pray that there are enough followers of jesus in america and in canada as we've seen what's happened with Grace Life Church, and I'm sure you've been aware of Pastor James Coates and some of the things that would have been unimaginable a few years ago that we're seeing happening in Canada due to the lockdowns and everything else where they're closing down churches, imprisoning pastors. But we can hope and we can pray that there are enough followers of Jesus who will strengthen what remains and draw on the strength that we have in Christ alone. Um, what do you see... Um, what do you see as being one step Christians can practically do right now to strengthen what remains? First of all, I want to say to all those who are listening frequently, Joel, I get this question. People say, I'm in a church that is really quite dead. It is not aware of what is happening in the culture. It is bought into the culture. It is more influenced by the culture than influencing the culture. And I turn to that passage and I say, you know, when Jesus appealed to the church there in Sardis, he was appealing to a small group. Obviously, the rest of the church was dead, but he was saying, there's still some of you in Sardis who aren't. So identify with that group. And mm. what is something that we can do? We can begin two things. First, in solidarity with other believers who believe like we do, to pray together, to repent together, and then comes the hard part, and that is to stand up for truth wherever we are, do it lovingly, carefully, well-crafted sentences, but stand up for truth and take the heat. Hmm. You will be vilified on social media. You will be spoken against. You may be marginalized, but it's like... Um, I think it was uh, Helmut Tillichy when he was criticized in Germany for standing against Hitler. Somebody said, well, you know, what does this look like here in Germany? He said, I don't care what it looks like here in Germany. I care about what it looks like in heaven. And so we begin to see 
that indeed this world is not our home. We are just passing through, as the song says, but we are willing to stand for truth. And parents, God is going to hold you accountable for your children, how they are raised. If they're in a public school, you have to stay on top of that every single day to know what they're being taught, to deprogram them, to help them to see the truth. Mm -hmm. And what you must do is to be willing to take that stand and say with Luther, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. The question is, will we be up to that or will we be so intimidated that we will lose our witness for Christ. Hey, Joel here from the Think Institute. Would you like to bring the Think Institute to your church, group, ministry, or conference? We can provide high quality, theologically sound, and engaging education in the areas of evangelism, apologetics, and the biblical worldview. We've spoken at churches, schools, conferences, and groups in Chicago, Indianapolis, Franklin, Tennessee, New Orleans, Dubai, and the Philippines, and more. We want to help your local church, ministry, or conference fulfill your piece of the Great Commission. We can provide teaching in person or remotely using our state-of-the-art conferencing technology. Learn more about bringing me or a member of the Think Institute team to your church, ministry, group, or conference by going to thethink.institute slash booking. That's thethink.institute slash booking. We've got a few questions now that have come in and I want to make sure that we just go ahead and get to them because I know you're on a schedule and I want to respect that. Um, and so let's go ahead and if it's all right with you, we'll take a, a few listener questions. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. The first question comes from Noah Despain, who's a faithful listener of the show. He says, what is the best way to engage the culture in a relevant way without abandoning scripture and being too much like the world. So how do we speak the world's language without without taking on the world's patterns of, of thinking? Well, one of the things that we have to do is to not respond like the world. You know, the Apostle Paul says, and I forget exactly the words, but he was saying, you know, when we are vilified, we entreat. In other words, you don't fight fire with fire. If somebody comes out with a very harsh comment about you, don't return another harsh comment, mm -hmm. overcome evil with good. And so what you have to do is to uh, make sure that your posture is one of humility. We can't come across as if we have all the answers. We should not come across as judgmentalism with judgmentalism. After all, we are all sinners saved by grace. And so that's what we do. One other idea that I would have there, Joel, for your friend is this. Don't necessarily think that you can take on the culture through social media. I know we're on social media right now. I'm aware of that. But you know what? I uh, know a young woman who's very conservative in her views, and she was putting on some posts on social media that reflected her views. And she was so vilified. I said, you know, it might not be worth it because everybody today is outraged about something. Maybe it's best for you to take some of your friends out for lunch, look them in the eye, listen to them, find out where they are coming from, and then you share your views. And I think that that might be more profitable than trying uh, a full-scale uh, assault on the world and all of its values. And if you write something 
make sure that it's carefully crafted. Don't exaggerate. Don't be like the world that can lie or tell half-truths and mm -hmm. be very proud of it. Let's fight, but let's fight differently. And then remember this, Joel, you don't need to win in order to be faithful. Just ask the martyrs. Ooh, very good. Uh, Noah Despain weighed back in. He said, that's a good point. Thank you. So uh, thanks for answering that question. This next one comes from Ann Dorner. Ann is actually the one who sent us your book. So Ann, major shout out to you. Thank you so much for sending us Pastor Lutzer's book. But Ann says this, uh, and she's a good friend. She says, we see how the pastor in Canada, James Coates, was treated. I wonder how soon our United States government will do the same here. Any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I want to commend her so much. Thank you so much for sending out copies of my book. Authors always like to hear that. But I need to say this. It isn't a matter of numbers. It isn't a matter of sales. I always pray that the books that I write will not only touch people's minds, but also their hearts. I try to be balanced between the reality of the world and every one of my chapters, as you know, has the response of the church mm -hmm. because that's where my heart is. I don't know how long it will be before the same kind of thing happens in America. I do know this, that uh, it could. And when it happens, it will happen for everybody's good, mm. for the collective good, which is always what the Marxists want to say. Isn't that ironic, right? And it will be done under the guise of justice. And as we see censorship happening, it will always be because, after all, we don't want misinformation to get out there. So however it is done, always expected to be done under lofty and wonderful sounding goals. That's good. And and the ironic thing is that we have Romans 8, 28 through 39, which says, that according to God's plan, if the church is persecuted or whatever else we face, that ultimately God is working things out for good, even, even despite the evil intentions of those who would be persecuting us or putting us under duress. Um, something, something good to think about, perhaps. Um, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, God did not abandon his sovereignty just because one person or another was elected in the United States to government. Amen. And uh, we're going to have to affirm that again and rejoice for the opportunity of representing Christ in this culture that has lost its way. Amen. Yeah, that's a great word. Nate Werner asks, how should a church approach local and global missions in a way that actively fights against cultural Marxism? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier in the program, what we need to do is to see our unity in Christ, no matter ethnicities, whatever, everyone, that's the role of the church. By the way, Joel, you have to have me on some other time and get me off on the topic of immigration. You all heard that. He's, he's, <laughs> you all heard that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I believe so deeply that we're confusing the role of the church with the role of the state. The role of the state is not one of compassion. If it can be compassionate, that's fine. But the role of the state is one of security and keeping law and order. In the New Testament, it is actually the symbol is the sword. 
The church is different. The church ministers to all kinds of people, which is exactly what your question was about. So I think that the best way is to show love, become involved in meeting the needs of people. That is biblical. That's biblical justice. But social justice is entirely different, as I tried to explain earlier in our program. And so minister to people, talk to people, listen to people, bear the burdens of people. And you know what? God is going to give you open doors. He's going to give you opportunities to serve that you thought might never come to you. Let God open those doors, but you walk through all that he has shown you. And, um, you know, opportunities are going to be there. Needs are great. And your ability to meet those needs is a wonderful bridge to the gospel. Amen. Well, Pastor Lucer, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we did have some more questions coming in, but uh, we've run out of time. So I want to thank you so much on behalf of myself, our listeners, my wife, everyone for coming on. And I just want to note again, uh, everyone heard you say that I'll have to have you on again. So I will. Uh, I would love to do that. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, and perhaps we could even have you on to talk about one of your other books, The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent, or because uh, we didn't even really get into radical Islam and how that factors into to uh, everything as well. But uh, Pastor Lutzer does address that in his book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Definitely go check this out. And um, is there maybe one other way that folks can get in touch with you or follow your work? Well, you know, they can also have copies of the book if they go to MCM Offer. Now, MCM stands for Moody Church Media. MCM Offer, that's all one word, dot com. And for a gift of any amount, they can receive the book. MCM Offer, or they can go to Amazon, wherever books are sold. Now, Joel, I can't say goodbye to you without asking you to greet your wife. I remember when she was a little girl here at the Moody Church. Yep. And above all, also greet your in-laws, your father-in-law, your mother-in-law, dear friends from a long ago past. God bless you. God bless you too. Pastor Lucer, thank you so much for your time. I'll talk to you next time. God bless you. Thank you. Bye. Well, thank you everybody for watching the Think Podcast. Uh, I have to say, I've had, I don't know how many hundred of these conversations, but uh, this was absolutely incredible. If you're just now joining us towards the end, if you're watching live, can I just encourage you, after this is over, after I wrap this up in about 30 seconds, go back to the beginning. You are going to want to see and hear what Pastor Luther has to say about the advancement of the agenda of the radical left and uh, and how he diagnoses the problem and, and what he says is the solution for it. It's gospel-centered, it's Bible-centered, it's Jesus-centered. That's exactly how we want to fight. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And yet, God does give us weapons to tear down every stronghold and every lofty thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So if we did not get to your question or, or your comment, um, I'm sorry, we only had so much time today, but... Um, uh, one quick reminder, you can catch all of our episodes by going to thethink.institute, 
slash podcast. And I want to just give one more call to those of you who might be uh, prayerfully inclined to give to the Think Institute and the work that we're doing to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. You can go to give.crew.org slash 101-8841. That is our giving link. And if you are interested in giving, uh, or rather in having myself or a member of our team come to your church, your group, uh, your conference, you can go to thethink.institute slash booking. Let me get that up on the screen. Thethink.institute slash booking. And I do come and speak at churches, conferences. That's actually my favorite thing to do is to come. I just recently gave a talk at a camp out for Trail Life USA, which was uh, something my boys are a part of, and uh, got to share the gospel with those boys on a, a camp out, but I do retreats, conferences, and uh, my favorite is um, local churches, local church gatherings, whether on a Sunday morning or a Sunday school class or something like that. So thank you all so much for watching. Again, you're going to want to watch this, re-watch this, listen to this over and over, put it on repeat, because uh, this was a dense, rich uh, wonderful episode. And uh, thanks again to Pastor Erwin Lutzer. And thank you to you all for watching, for giving, for joining us on this mission as we seek to answer impossible questions from a biblical perspective. And remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. That's about all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think.